Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 8 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, I would direct you to the show notes for a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode. However, just to give you the usual brief taster, in France we considered wholesale summer changes on and off the field of play at Bordeaux, discussing whether those changes have made any real difference to the fortunes of the club who of course won league and back in 2009. In La Liga, we discussed the unique qualities of the Basque derby between Real Sociedad and Athletic Club, looking at the local culture and some of the other factors which make the derby so inimitable. In Italy, we looked at the mentality which Ivan Juric has instilled at Torino. Torino, of course, sit in 12th place in Serie A, but they have won two out of their last three games and they now face a quite favourable run of fixtures over the coming weeks. And in Germany, we looked at where it all went wrong for Mark van Bommel, who was sacked by Wolfsburg after just 115 days in charge. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This show is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, my voice is struggling. I'm carrying a quite brutal cold at the moment, so I will let the episode take centre stage. My voice held up slightly better when we were recording last night, so hopefully you enjoy the episode. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Michael Jones had hoped to join us for every section for this episode, but he is experiencing extensive technical difficulties he's had to reboot his computer he's had to reconfigure his microphone so he'll be joining us later hopefully to discuss Italy well he will be joining us later in one way or another with or without his microphone or his laptop but for the time being Rudy Barlow is with me and Rudy Barlow is waiting in the wings to discuss some quite tantalizing action in La Liga over the last few weeks. But before we get on to that, Barlow, how are you doing? How have you been? 
Yeah, no bad. Hectic few weeks, but I'm uh, I'm building up to a holiday, so I've loaded up my workload and I'm, I'm gradually working my way through it. Although I am starting to think that uh, we're not good enough for Michael, given he keeps not turning up on us. Excuse after excuse. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's probably just trying to limit his time with us. He's just fed up of our accents. He's fed up of our chat. No, uh, having seen how exasperated, <laughs> having seen how exasperated Michael was on the call moments ago, I'm quite convinced that he is genuinely experiencing technical difficulties. Hopefully, he can resolve them shortly. In the meantime, Barlow. There is a phrase used amongst Barcelona-based media quite often these days, not a single effing quiet Thursday afternoon. Now, the days and times have become interchangeable, reflecting both the comedic aspect of the chaos at Barcelona and the regularity with which correspondents like ESPN's Moises Llorens have to deal with breaking news. This time last week, it wasn't a Thursday evening, but a Wednesday night, of course. Ronald Koeman has been sacked in a move we all saw coming from a mile away. How do we evaluate not just the sacking, Barlow, but Koeman's tenure on the whole? Yeah, um, Moises Jurens, as you mentioned there, has uh, he popularised the phrase and it's sort of came back and back again every single time that a large crisis at Barcelona hit, which turns out is quite often. So um, it's become a sort of catch-all phrase. Koeman sacked on the plane just five games after the initial sort of change of heart from Laporte, if we can call it that, where he he decided to give Koeman a bit more time and, and another chance. But I think this was just breaking point and, and the way that the team was performing, the image that they were given to, to use this sort of Spanglish phrase was just too much for Laporta. And it's a sacking that really has been precipitated right back to, to the summer and even right back to the start of his tenure. I think if we if we cycle all the way back to when he was appointed, Koeman was always spoken about as sort of a placeholder manager, someone to clean house, someone to sort of repair things for the next manager to come in and sort of really pick it up from. And so in a way, this was to be expected. A lot has changed in the time since when Koeman was appointed compared to to now and the situation that the club finds itself in without Leo Messi as well. For me, it's a sacking that probably should have occurred in summer. And I think most fans, I think Laporta himself would agree with it. And the first thing that really derailed his tenure as Barcelona manager was that two weeks that Laporta gave himself to find a new manager he said to Koeman in the summer I'm not quite convinced essentially and I I want time to find someone new couldn't find anyone better and so now we're in this situation where Laporta not believing in in Koeman and I think that's part of the reason that he did have that change of heart that he did give Koeman a little bit more time was could perhaps he felt guilty about the way he'd handled it and the way he treated Kuman in that time. But this was a, a really hard job to do, to be honest. I think most managers would have failed in this position. I think he's not been given the tools to succeed. The loss of Messi, the presidential struggles, he went six months nearly without a president. And I know I say it again, but it is important to, to relay these facts whenever we analyze it, because otherwise it, it's really hard to understand. 
crisis after crisis. Cumin had to deal with it all without any sort of power behind him, really. And in the context of it, oh, Cumin actually did do a good job last season. That he had Barcelona in a title fight. He managed to win a Copa del Rey when really I don't think anybody expected either of those things last season. It was pretty impressive that he managed it. He managed to blood a load of youngsters as well. And all of these things led you to believe that perhaps he deserved the chance to carry on. But there's always that kind of caveat. There was always a hint that Koeman maybe wasn't a manager to, to take Barcelona forward at this level, despite the job he had done. And those issues that were on show towards the end of last season and throughout points during last season really sort of made you doubt the viability of him as a sort of long-term manager for Barcelona. And, and so it turned out and sort of cycling back towards this, this sacking this season, the things that have changed very clearly are the discourse of Koeman. Before he was a brilliant spokesperson for, for all his faults as a manager and tactically, he really gave a bit of confidence to the club. He managed to win around the senior players. And, and I think he did have a lot of loyalty from the squad initially or at various points. But yeah, this this team, there's just so many, I mean, we've spoken about it, so many glaring issues, tactically, structurally, in terms of belief, they were a shell of a side. They, they looked like they had PTSD. And, and the side that we've seen now is much closer to what you would have expected to see after the 8-2 against Bayern. And for me, that that's that's why he's been sacked. In the meantime, Sergei Barjuan has been appointed as an interim manager, but all roads seem to lead to the appointment of Xavi. What does success look like in the short and medium term for the new manager, whether that be Xavi or someone else? Yeah, Sergei Barjuan, it's literally just about surviving. And they managed to beat Dinamo Kiev 1-0 away from home in a poor performance but all that mattered was the result he has another game against Celta at the weekend which I think he'll probably be in charge for and it looks as if Xavi will be appointed at the time of recording just minutes ago actually Xavi coached a match for Al Sadd in Qatar Barcelona's representatives are there and he confirmed after the game that he was excited to return home and that he hoped a deal could be done so that does seem to point I mean we can't say anything's done until it's done but it seems as if he will get the job in terms of success for Xavi I think short term or this season at least Champions League that's that's all Barcelona need is they need that money they can't really afford to drop out of the top four which is by no means a given the way they're playing this season they're currently in ninth place and there's plenty of other teams that look better than them but for me I think in in terms of a more general goal and a uh, and what Barcelona fans, the boards, the club need is just a direction of travel. And and going back to Koeman, I think that's that's another reason that he was sacked is because there was no clear goal or or direction in which the club was going in terms of style, in terms of a mentality. And that's what really harmed him. And that's what Xavi is being brought in to give, I think. And Although Xavi's maybe not the most experienced manager, although he's maybe not coached in the big leagues, I think one of the things that does work in his favour is that he knows exactly what he wants. And he knows that he has, there's a security in the fact that he's really convinced of his ideas. 
and that it sort of marries with the Barcelona idea, so to speak. I mean, that's a very <laughs> perfunctory phrase, but yeah, depending on resources, it's hard to know exactly how we'll be able to evaluate him. But end of next season, I think he probably needs to have the team challenging for the title or at least looking as if they can. This season, Champions League. But overall, he just needs to get this club moving forward again. At the weekend, we had a replay of the 2020 Copa del Rey final in San Sebastian with what was the first Basque derby with fans since before the pandemic. All the noise and pantomime that was missing from the final was present on Sunday night in the world's friendliest derby. Could you enlighten us, Barlow, as to how exactly a derby can be friendly and fiery at the same time? With absolute pleasure, Ali. I mean, it's a bit of a trope that kind of gets pulled out every time they play each other now because, uh, I mean, it is a fairly unique situation. In terms of the fixture itself, it was top of the table La Real against an athletic club that had only lost one game so far this season. And it, it was a good game. Inigo Martinez was sent off uh, and that kind of speaks to the fieriness of this fixture. He crossed the divide and went to Athletic from La Real. He was the Real Sociedad captain and left for their biggest rivals. And there was plenty of whistling and abuse for him. And, and, and yeah, it, it was a good game. But you also see fans in the crowd of both teams sitting together. There's a brilliant video by El Dia Después, which is a Spanish sort of TV program. <laughs> And they have the camera on this one athletic fan surrounded by Larian fans the whole game. Uh, and seeing him celebrate as Athletic got a last minute equalizer um, while the rest of the stand sort of drops their heads was, was quite something. Um, but yeah, it, it's a friendly derby. I think both of these sides feel a similarity in the sense of the clubs and their identities. I think I think they they managed to kind of appreciate that, but also it is fairly a fierce rivalry. And a lot of the time in Spain, I do think there's a tendency to maybe look at other countries and other derbies, or not so much derbies, but other countries sometimes, and look at the atmosphere, look at the stadiums with a little bit of envy, but not this game. This game was rocking. It was thundering. La Real often do the Poznan when they score. It, it was absolutely bouncing. And yeah, I, I think that's, part of what lends this fixture such a special feel in Spain is that almost English atmosphere and I know that tends to be overplayed it's a bit of a trope but it does exist um, and yeah the crowd I think we spoke earlier this season about the lack of maybe mala leche the lack of sort of that hard edge to mm-hmm. La Real earlier in the season and yeah I I think they found a little bit of it. Mikel Marino spoke at the weekend about how English football teaches you to, to win the battle rather than think about your technical skills. There's a video again of Mikel Oriazabal, the captain, a few weeks ago where one of the youngsters kind of gets floored and, and he, he goes down wanting a free kick and one of the outside players sort of stands over him and looks to go at him. Mikel Oyarzabal comes charging in and sort of backs him off and, and he's having a conversation with the referee afterwards and you can see him saying, well, the referee's sort of telling him to calm down and whatnot. And he's just like, well, no, do you think he would do that if that were me? He's doing it because he's a youngster to try and intimidate him and I'm not having it. 
And so that kind of uh, attitude and, and sort of brazenness, I think it, it helps them a lot. I think the crowd has helped sort of bring that attitude and the feistiness to La Real. And it's what's keeping them top of the table at the minute. They're a lot more choral in defence for me. They they work together a lot better. And Ari Elustondo put in some fantastic challenges in this game. And, and that managed to secure them a draw at the very end of the game. Alex Ramiro, who crossed the divide the other way, went from Athletic to La Real, pammed or, or punched, sorry, um, the ball into his own goal off a Munyain free kick and uh, yeah heartbreak for him Santi Cañizares did a very good thread on Twitter the old Valencia goalkeeper describing his, his sort of problems with punching to save but this was just a really great game it was a really great derby and and for Athletic I mean it was a kind of familiar story the limiting factor in terms of finishing and Yaki Williams just doesn't quite have that killer instinct and they still don't have a replacement to play instead of him They've scored the least um, joint least goals in the division and they're sort of seven below um, goals scored in, in terms of XG this season, which tells you just how blunt their edge is, so to speak. But yeah, just a great game, two great clubs and a unique derby alley. Beautiful, Barlow. Just a quick word for Danny Rodriguez and Real Mallorca. Uh, it's not as if we are even being treated like a promoted side we are not being treated fairly as professionals, commented the forward when asked about the referee after Mallorca dropped points in a heated match with Cadiz. That feels like it might be problematic for him, Barlow. Yeah, and if you, I think Mundo Deportivo tweeted out an article saying that he was going to get banned for four to 12 games. Um, because of those comments and he didn't help himself by replying to said tweet with a video of the incidents which which caused him so much anger <laughs> um so yeah that might be might be 12 games danny but yeah it was a bit of a crazy game they were one a lot mallorca one of their players was released in behind taken down in a shocking challenge by Itha Carthelen for Cadiz. he then received a red card which was then disallowed or, or taken back because of a previous offside found by VAR. As you can imagine, Mallorca were incensed by this. Luis Garcia, their manager, was sent off. And then Alexander Sedlar was later sent off. And in the 93rd minute, Alvaro Negredo slots away a penalty. So you can imagine Mallorca were rightly incensed. But I'm aware we're kind of short of time here, so I'm going to uh, cycle through this. This is part of a, a bigger issue for Mallorca and the fact that they've dropped six points after the 85th minute um, across four different matches. And if matches were to finish in the 85th minute, Mallorca would be sixth, two points off the top of the table. It's, it's not good. And Mallorca, although they have played quite well, and I think I've been quite impressed with them as, as a side, as a team, they have quality. They've got Kanjin Lee, they've got Takekubo playing well. And you almost saw that in discipline with Kanjin Lee when he got sent off against Valencia. It was sort of, a microcosm of Mallorca's problems and the fact that Kanjian against his former club scored a beautiful assist to put Mallorca, or scored a beautiful assist, provided a beautiful assist to put uh, Mallorca ahead against Valencia's former side and then 10 minutes into the second half gets sent off and it's 
they're their own worst enemies sometimes. And those bad habits that we spoke about, sort of conceding late, slight indiscipline, it does make me worry because although they're playing well now, if that's something that you don't fix, when you hit that patch of form that you're not so good, that things the ball just won't go in, then it becomes a real issue because you can't take points. And I think that adversity, that difference between either either converting this good play into results and ensuring themselves up a little bit more or going the other way and perhaps being able to maintain the good play and, and failing to show themselves up will be the difference between success and relegation this season. Indeed, Barlow, thank you as always for your eloquent and insightful roundup of all things Spanish football. We are going to take a quick break. I'm going to fill up my water bottle and we'll check in with Michael Jones to see how his battle with technology is faring. When we come back, we are going to look at two German clubs in Wolfsburg and Freiburg. We'll be right back. To Germany. Mark Van Bommel became the first managerial casualty of the Bundesliga season following Wolfsburg's 2-0 defeat at home to Freiburg last weekend. That loss extended Wolfsburg's winless run in all competitions to eight games. And yet, aside from a costly faux pas in the DFB Pokal, the 2008-2009 Bundesliga champions had made a promising start to life under the Dutchman. With four wins in their opening four league games, the club found themselves two points clear of Bayern Munich at the top of the Bundesliga table. So, where exactly did it all go wrong for Van Bommel at Wolfsburg? Jasmine Baba summarised it neatly in her recent article on the DW website, so I would highly recommend going and having a look at that article. It was really insightful. Essentially, Barlow Van Bommel was trying to implement an approach which represented too abrupt a departure from the approach which had been put in place by his predecessor, Oli Glasner, who is now, of course, at Frankfurt. Glasner, of course, favoured a cautious approach, looking first and foremost to make Wolfsburg solid, difficult to break down, with an emphasis on counter-attacking. Van Bommel, on the other hand, tried to shift Wolfsburg towards a more possession-based style of play. And as Jasmine Baba puts it, that approach requires players to find open spaces to receive passes, to make runs behind the defence, and to be a lot more active with the ball. Now, any successful implementation of such a radical shift from Glasner's cautious approach to Van Bommel's more possession-based approach would have required a really quite significant reset. And when we consider the results, when we consider, more importantly, the performances, there was plenty of evidence to suggest and ultimately to confirm that the shift from Glasner style to Van Bommel style simply wasn't working. The shift was just too radical, Barlow, and Van Bommel apparently wasn't capable enough 
as a manager to successfully implement that switch. To be honest, I wasn't ever really convinced by those four wins at the start of the Bundesliga season. Now, while it represented their best ever start to a Bundesliga campaign, something just didn't really feel quite right, Barlow. They only conceded one goal across those opening four league games. However, their expected goals against figures suggested that they should have conceded on four occasions. At the other end of the pitch, their expected goals numbers were, in fairness, not entirely unhealthy. However, there were a few potential warning signs, Barlow. They'd only created 50 attempts on goal, and that was the 10th best in the league at that time. They'd only managed six goals, which equaled less than half of what Dortmund, Bayern and Bayer Leverkusen had all managed, i.e. other teams up at that end of the table. Only three of their six goals came from open play as well, and I think that's quite telling. Barlow, only Hertha Berlin, Augsburg and Grauterfurt had managed fewer goals from open play over those four games. Indeed, perhaps inevitably, in the five league games that followed after that winning run, they mustered just three goals scored while conceding 11 times. It fell apart very quickly, Barlow, and those warning signs turned out to be quite pertinent, you might say. Now, Van Bommel's replacement is none other than Florian Kurfeldt, who showed signs of promise during his early days in charge of Werder Bremen before it all ended in tears when the club were relegated at the end of last season. He's been handed a two-year contract at the Volkswagen Arena and he's won his first two games as Wolfsburg coach with his new side beating Leverkusen 2-0 in the league before recording a vital 2-1 win against Salzburg in the Champions League. Kofeld is a capable coach who I think will absolutely get more out of what is a very good squad than Mark Van Bommel. Yeah, I was interested to see that they appointed Kofeld actually and uh, certainly one of the more interesting characters in the Bundesliga, very highly rated by, by many, but also as you say, ended in tears in Bremen. Back to Mark von Bommel and his ephemeral spell at the Volkswagen Arena serves in stark contrast to Christian Streich's longevity at SA Freiburg. At the time of recording, the 56-year-old has been manager of the Baden-Württemberg outfit for nine years, 10 months and four days, making him the longest current serving manager in Germany's top flight. Remarkably, Schreich's Freiburg side find themselves in third place in the Bundesliga table, having picked up six wins and four draws in their first 10 league games. Taking into account their gleaming new stadium and the fact that they boast the only unbeaten record in the Bundesliga this season, how rosy is the outlook for one of German football's most affable sides? My good friend Chris Ray was actually lucky enough to be at the Freiburg game against Grauterfurt last weekend, seeing (laughs) them win 3-1. So not only was I incredibly jealous, but I was also quick to ask him several questions about 
the general mood at Freiburg. And as he always says, Chris was excellent with his answers. Happy to give me some of his time. And he's a, a very busy guy, so I was grateful to him for that. He'd obviously made this trip to the southwest of Germany. It's a trip that he makes quite regularly, certainly in non-pandemic times. And he was more than happy to give me an insight into the current mood at the club following their excellent start to the season. I was particularly interested to speak to him about the new stadium at Freiburg. I'm not quite sure why, but I expected him to be slightly reticent about the move to the new stadium, but he was universally positive about it. He said that the new stadium is great and he did admit that he kind of wished that it wouldn't be as good as the Dreisum Stadion for nostalgic reasons, but he said that the view is excellent, the atmosphere is excellent, and the price is excellent as well. It was 15 euros entry. He paid four euros for a beer and two euros for a bratwurst. He said the transport links were good. There was a 15-minute tram ride from town out to the stadium. And even with his Scottish vaccine passport, he was able to enter the stadium without any real difficulties. So a big tick in that sense. More generally, the club is in a great place financially and the AGM just passed with very few grumbles at all, if any. There is one negative of sorts, I suppose, and that's the fact that this court ruling is still in place whereby Freiburg can only play their games on certain days at certain times. I think there is a feeling that that court ruling will ultimately be overturned, but for the time being, it's still a stain of sorts on an otherwise perfect copybook for Freiburg. In terms of key players, Chris was full of praise for forward Lucas Howler, who has started every game for Freiburg this season. He's not the most clinical of finishers, but he works hard, he makes good runs, and he occupies defenders effectively. He also links up nicely with 22-year-old forward Wu Yong Zhong, who has been a revelation for Freiburg of late. Maximilian Egestein has been a more than capable replacement for the outgoing Baptiste Santa Maria, who's of course now at Rennes in Ligue 1. Egestein isn't as dynamic going forward as Santa Maria, but he's still a very solid addition. Now, there's a really exciting crop of young players coming through at Freiburg, such as Kevin Schade and the aforementioned Wu Yong Jong. One to watch in particular, Barlow, is 21-year-old defender Nico Schlotterbeck, who has started every game for Freiburg this season, like Lucas Howler. Now, Schlotterbeck was profiled in the most recent volume of the Scouted Football Handbook, and he was also called up for the German national team by Hansi Flick. So he's got a lot going for him, and there's a lot of quite understandable hype. He likes to venture forward from his position in the back line. He's in the 88th percentile for progressive carries per 90 when compared with his positional peers, and he's in the 99th percentile for shot-creating actions. He's also in the 97th percentile for non-penalty expected goals. 
So clearly a player who likes to get forward and who is effective when he does get forward. In terms of more traditional defensive traits, Schlotterbeck is in the 91st percentile for tackles, 1 per 90, and the 97th percentile for interceptions per 90. So Schlotterbeck and his teammates make up a really interesting playing squad. And when we take that playing squad with this cracking new stadium and the fact that they've picked up 22 points from their opening 10 games, I think it's fair to say that it really is quite rosy indeed for Freiburg. Up next, they face Bayern Munich away on Saturday. Now, the result of that game won't define their season at all. But the trip to Bavaria does afford strike side a free hit of sorts. Regardless of how the game goes, it's clear that Freiburg are in a very positive place. We've spoken before about how remarkable it is that Freiburg continue to punch above their weight and defy expectations. As Chris said to me towards the end of our chat, in Streich, they trust. In France, it was all looking very bleak for Bordeaux in the 63rd minute of their home clash with Stade de Rennes last weekend. Trailing 2-0, Vladimir Petkovic's side were in real danger of finding themselves in Ligue 1's relegation playoff spot by the end of match day 12. However, inspired by the introduction of 36-year-old Jimmy Briand, blast from the past, in the 66th minute, the 2008-2009 champions of France would go on to score three goals in the final 20 minutes to pick up a crucial three points in their battle to avoid the drop. Does this win represent a turning point in their season, or will it merely paper over the proverbial cracks, Alley? I think it's probably too early to say with any certainty, Barlow, but if you were to push me for an answer, I would probably be inclined to say the latter, i.e. that this win merely papers over the cracks at Matmut Atlantique. Barlow, I think the comeback last weekend was more the product of pure adrenaline rather than any notable shift in team cohesion or overall ability. And with every passing match day, Vladimir Petkovic's decision to leave the relative comfort of the Swiss national team for the head coach role at Bordeaux seems increasingly baffling, particularly when some people might make the argument that right now the Bordeaux manager's job is somewhat of a poisoned chalice, perhaps. And yet, Barlow, there was genuine optimism following what felt like a fairly positive summer at Bordeaux. You'll remember that we documented their struggles on and off the field of play towards the end of last season. Just as a reminder, the club's owners pulled the plug with the club subsequently being placed in administration. And the team only just avoided the relegation playoff spot, picking up two crucial wins in the last two games of the season. Over the summer, however, a new owner came in in the form of Gerard Lopez, who of course bought over Lille in 2017 before he departed late last year with the 
club struggling financially. The club, of course, went on to win Ligan, but Lopez had departed by that point. But he's back in French football as the owner of Bordeaux. When he arrived over the summer, he set about making quite a lot of changes. Firstly, he brought in a new technical director in Admar Lopez, who had worked under Louis Campos at Monaco and Lille, the recruitment guru, Louis Campos, who is highly rated wherever he goes and seems to have a somewhat Midas touch, we might say, Barlow. Lopez also went about appointing Vladimir Petkovic, who had spent seven years in charge of Switzerland and took them so close, of course, to the semi-final of Euro 2020 over the summer. And he also won Coppa Italia with Lazio in 2013. So he seemed like a really positive appointment. They recruited a number of players over the summer as well, including Fran Sergio from Braga and Jean Onana from Lille. Also signed several players on loan, including PSG's Timothy Pembley, who's a highly rated 18-year-old defender, a lot expected of him in the coming years. That said, they did sell arguably two of their best players in Toma Basic, who went to Lazio for €7 million, and Yassin Adli, who went to AC Milan for €8 million before returning to the club on loan for the season. But just, just generally, new faces on and off the pitch, and certainly at the start of the season, I think there was a degree of optimism, Barlow. But performances, however, have so far been much the same as last season. Now, for what it's worth, I think they'll probably do as they did last season, i.e. they'll stay up without ever really convincing. They'll huff and they'll puff their way to enough points over the course of the season to avoid the drop. But it will be quite brutal for the fans and it won't be enjoyable. The main issue, I think, is that the team's move construction is every bit as uninspired as it was last season. In terms of creativity, there's an over-reliance on 21-year-old Yasin Adley, who I mentioned earlier. Adley fades in and out of games, and when he's in games, he's brilliant, he's really creative, but he's not reliable as your main source of creativity. Weijo Huang has scored four goals in nine league and games and is capable of producing something special, such as his goal in the Atlantic Derby against Nantes last month. However, he's unfortunately sprained his ankle, ruling him out for the rest of the calendar year. I think his absence really exacerbates the team's lack of focus through the middle, and that lack of focus through the middle is coupled with really poor end product from the wide areas. So naturally, the team struggle to score goals and struggle to trouble defences consistently. Perhaps most worryingly, the team's expected goal difference has them sitting bottom of the table. That is quite telling, if you ask me, Barlow, and if you ask most followers of football. I'll finish with a word on the atmosphere 
at Matmut at Longtique Barlow. That's the relatively new home ground of Bordeaux. When it's full, the atmosphere is magical. And I can speak to that personally. I was there, as I've said before, for the game between Spain and Croatia at Euro 2016. The atmosphere Barlow was electric. Superb atmosphere. Really conducive to considerable noise. It was wonderful. It was a really good match day experience. However, for far too many league and games, the stadium isn't even half full, Barlow. Yeah, in the big games against Lyon, against PSG, and in the derby, for example, against Nantes, they'll get close to selling out the stadium. It holds about 40,000 fans. But for far too many games, the stadium is really quite empty. You've got the passionate ultras behind one of the goals, and they're incredibly vocal, incredibly loyal throughout regardless of how the team are playing, regardless of how poor or how well the team are playing, they're there in quite impressive numbers and they make plenty of noise. However, the rest of the stadium is often really quite empty, which lends itself to the place feeling really quite dystopian. Barlow, you see all these ultras packing the stand behind the goal, and then you see the rest of the stadium with hardly any fans. It's dystopian. I am quite worried for the club in terms of the extent to which they can progress. I'm quite worried for them financially as well. They only just maintain their league and status following Lopez coming in and rescuing the club. You could say Lopez himself described it as a rescue mission rather than a takeover. Financially, the club aren't in a great place. The football's not ideal. Petkovic hasn't really managed the transition from international management back to club management that well so far. Let's see how they get on for the rest of the season. Atalanta's 2-2 draw at Lazio on Saturday meant that Ladea have won just one of their last seven games at home, having won the previous seven. Although Gian Piero Gasparini's men sit level on points with fourth-placed Roma, they are closer to the relegation zone than they are the summit of Serie A. Characterised by progress in the last few years, the message the club appears to be projecting right now is one of sustainability with most of their traditionally bigger rivals undergoing a period of volatile spending over the past few years, how can Atalanta manage this expectation and continue to compete? I think ultimately they are two things that are dependent on one another. And I think to dissect any structural problems of arguably Italy's best-run club is a challenge. But to try and explain why the absence of progress so far this season we must sort of look at what some of those short-term factors are. And earlier in the season, talked about why they were maybe slow starters and mentioned a few things about international involvement and the issues they'd had in the past with Gomez leaving and electricity decline. But I think this is actually a lot more structural than these issues have been. And we look at the last two games, Atalanta's last two home games. And, you know, we talked about that home form and, 
both of them 2-2 draws versus Manchester United and Lazio. And although neither result was disastrous as such, uh, there was probably a case of both games for various reasons and the output of the game for both games being underwhelming. And I think last the selections in both games are quite telling in that. So, I mean, you look at Atalanta with Gasparini, they've traditionally always played a 3-5-2 or some similar variation of a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-2-1. And, however, in these two games, they had Martin Darun, typ typically a centre midfielder, he was playing in the back three, and you had Mario Pasalic, another player typical, typically a centre midfielder in, as one of their attacking midfielder roles in what used to be that Papu Gomez role. And, you know, for me, I think whilst Gasparini is maybe one of the best managers in Europe for what he's achieved with uh, Atalanta, you know, any team, any manager which relies on a formation that is so strict on a, for, on a, on a formation that's so reliant on that system as such, they need to have the right balances in order to fit it. And I think that's something that's seriously missing at the moment because if you think about with Doreen playing in defence and Pasalic playing further forwards, with Romo Freuler and Tian Coop Miners both playing in centre midfield, there's an overload of midfield players on a, and not entirely attacking midfield players on a, on a system and formation, which is Gasparini's designed to be so focused on the offensive. And I think looking at the big picture, in one sense, Atalanta have always been in balance since Gasparini's appointment. And that's what's made them so entertaining. I think if you think back the past few seasons with Hatterbur and Gert, Hans Hatterbur and Robin Gersons, totally attack-minded wingbacks supplying the likes of Gomez, Ilicic and Zapata, the team always traditionally looked in balance in defence, which is maybe in the past few windows where they tried to address it with Christian Romero, who's now, of course, at Tottenham, uh, Juan Musa and Mary Demaral. But previously, with their imbalances, at least, it always placed a lot of them on attack and I think that's what always made Gasparini's teams more exciting but I think this time around it, you know Gasparini's system's always going to guarantee goals because it is an attacking system but it should be noted that they have only scored more than twice in two games this season against Empoli and Sampdoria and so I think we've got some of the options in terms of the attacking options that they have, aside from Zapata in particular, but also looking at the wingbacks when I was referring to Gerson's and Hatterberg before this season, the more common combination has been Davide Zapacosta and Joaquin Mela. Their sort of non-penalty expected goals and assists per 90 is much lower compared to the likes of Hatterberg and Gerson's even last season. It's almost half of that. So I think what we currently have at Atalanta is an attack-minded manager unlikely to change his system with a defensively heavy squad. And when going back to that sort of original question you asked, Ali, we're talking sort of that balance between progress or the priority between progress and sustainability. I think in order for Atalanta to sustain what they're doing, which is, you know, being a regular Champions League side, they must keep the likes of Zapata and Gersons, who are so key to them. But they're going to need to, I genuinely think they'll only keep them by one of two ways. And that's by, but both of them come down to adding attacking talent, because that's something they've just completely failed to address, in my opinion, since the departure of Gomez. And I think it's really coming to the fore this season. So what they can do is either add in the next two transfer windows. Alternatively, they rely on youth with a brilliant academy they've 
uh, they've had a great success with, but maybe not success in the playing side too much in terms of attacking talents. Uh, we look at the likes of Musa Barrow and Ahmad Diallo departing without exactly shining at the Gary Stadium. Maybe their previous policy of selling on talent can now enable them to nurture future prospects more at a first team level. This is maybe the case with Roberto Piccoli, who they have now. So I think what I'm getting at ultimately is that, you know, Atalanta really maybe need to reprioritize after a summer of spending heavily on defensive options. They need to now, Gasparini now needs to find solutions in the next few months, because I don't think it's going to be solved just through the playing options that he currently has. He needs to figure out what, how they're going to get Atalanta backfiring, back getting those big goal tallies that that system should create. Saturday night saw two new managers come face to face. Ultimately, it was Ivan Juric's Torino who ran riot, discarding Roberto Diversa's Sampdoria with a 3-0 win. Often taunted in previous years over their reliance on striker Andrea Bellotti, his third goal from the bench was not much more than a mere footnote during this particular victory in Turin. Just how has Juric transformed Torino's trajectory so quickly, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes down to mentality, but I mean, it's a really interesting one with Torino. You look in the recent form and it doesn't actually look great. They've had three defeats in the past five, 12 in Serie A, but don't let that deceive anybody who's listening that the mood around Torino is not much rosier than it has actually been for quite a while. I think Firstly, if you take account into those losses, all of them have been to Juventus, AC Milan and Napoli, and they've only been by a solitary goal, 1-0 each time. And given their league position, they've actually played six of Italy's top seven, which does not even include Juventus. And although they have not emerged with many points, what I believe is quite telling about this mentality that I just mentioned was Juric's side is that they emerged from it all rather unscathed, whereas a lot of teams sort of receiving losses to those kind of teams may not do that and I think it shows not just by the results against that against those teams in the top seven but against teams in the rest of the table and the general manner of them they've had like we said that really convincing victory over Sampdoria at the weekend other victories include a 4-0 one over Salernitana a 1-0 away victory to Sassuolo and a dramatic 3-2 victory over Genoa which has kind of had everything going on a couple of weeks ago and I think what I get the sense from is that Juric has really used levels of adversity in the face of this Torino team to their advantage. And that sort of boils down to what's been a really disruptive summer when he was appointed. They struggled for recruits early on. They lost Lianco, a Brazilian centre-back to Southampton. And they also had this star man, Andrea Bellotti, admitting that he would not be renewing his contract with it due to expire this season. And like I said, I mean, when you go back to the mentality by in all the defeats, I sort of talked about those one nil narrow losses, but overall in all the games they've lost this season have not been by more, by more than one goal. And I think the sort of confidence driven from all this adversity seems to have permitted them to play a more varied attacking system. Last season, for example, Andre Bellotti played a part in over a third of their goals. And this time it's less than a seventh. And he's only actually started two games. And it's kind of gone to show that Jurich is really not scared to mess about with some of the big names at Torino, despite 
you know, given the off-field, sort of thinking what's best for the dressing room ultimately. And the fact that he is still including Andrea Bellotti, who is, you know, by far and away Torino's best player, but the fact that he's still including him, given his substitute appearance over Sam Duran scoring at the weekend, shows that he's also got the man management skills not to completely alienate him. And I think tactically we're seeing him build on the 3 4 one that Tareen played at times last season. I've played a lot over the last few years, especially with Mazzari in charge. There's something they're familiar with, which really just goes to show what a good appointment it is. But I think the next test for Jurich in this sort of mentality, okay, he's kind of got them with their backs against the ropes and getting results and grinding them out. But in the next seven games, it's only Roma who are in the current top seven. So now we could really see them kick on. And I guess the next test for Ivan Jurich in this Torino team is, can he get them to build a winning mentality? Because if so, they can really pick up points and really get up higher in the table from that 12th place, which isn't that bad, all things considering they were in a relegation battle last season. Saturday also marked another miserable night for Torino's local rivals, Juventus who have now suffered back-to-back defeats to disrupt their fledgling momentum. A lot of Juve's momentum was, of course, down to the excellent Manuel Locatelli. Conveniently enough, it was Locatelli's former employer, Sassuolo, who handed Juventus the first of those back-to-back defeats. Perhaps even more conveniently, Inero Verde appeared to have already found Locatelli's replacement, in the shape of Davide Fratezzi. The 22-year-old put on a clinic in his side's win against the old lady, but just how excited should we be about the young Italian? Yeah, a short answer would be very, but obviously that's not what we do on this podcast. We should be very excited for two main reasons, really, and they're nothing out of the ordinary when discussing young role players that we always do kind of enjoy discussing on the podcast. But I think the first one is that I think Fratezzi's got a really high ceiling when it comes to potential and that secondly he's just a player that's just so entertaining and exciting on the eye and in terms of the type of player he is he is a box-to-box midfielder and uh, in the broadest terms of profile to Locatelli albeit with a very different career path so far I mean whilst Locatelli broke through at AC Milan before settling at Sassuolo Fratesi spent three seasons in Serie B, being a regular at each team he had in Ascoli, Empoli, and most recently Silvio Berlusconi's Monza before graduating to the Sassuolo first team this season. And there's been a real sign of progress. Again, progress has kind of been a theme in this Italian bit, I guess. There's, with Fratesi as well, it's a real theme with him in terms of his goals and assists. They've increased to 1, 7, and 10 in the past three seasons, which has rightly earned him a chance in Italy's top tier. And, you know, many will have caught the eye with the excellent goal in Sassuolo's victory against Torino last week. And despite the loss to Empoli at the weekend, that win against Juventus has marked a great turnaround for Sassuolo boss Alessio Dionisi since Roberto De Zerbi's departure to Shakhtar Donetsk and Locatelli's to Juventus. And after losing the first three out of five games, in the league under him. They've lost just one out of four, and Fratesi has been key to that. And if you look at his stats and you break them down, it's really looking like he's been taking more responsibilities. Progressive carries, averaging 5.5 in those last four games compared to 2.2 in the opening five. 
Um, there's been a huge increase in pressures in the attacking third from him from at 5.6 to what were 0.4 in the first five games. And I guess, you know, whilst there's a lot of numbers to digest there, what they do clearly show is progress at a rapid pace. And I think that's what has marked Bratese's overall career so far, but also his short career in the Sassuolo first team so far. And I think, you know, there's certain elements of his game, which he will definitely look to improve. You know, if you're looking for a player who's passing statistics are going to be in the higher echelons of um, midfielders in the league. He's certainly not going to be there. But I think if you want a midfielder that is going to take chances and excite you, he's 100% a player to keep your eye on. Lovely, Michael. Well, we'll follow the progress of Davide Fratezzi closely as he develops. Thank you, Michael, for that excellent roundup of all things Italian football over the last couple of weeks. We got there in the end, despite some extensive technical difficulties on your end. Uh, how are you doing generally, Michael, just before we log off? How have you been? Yeah, I must say, I've been sitting in front of a laptop for an hour and a bit just trying to fix this. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm other than that, life's good. So thank you and thanks for your patience as well. Ah, Michael, patience is key when it comes to producing a podcast and we were more than willing to wait to hear your dulcet tones speaking about Italian football with all of your knowledge on that note I think we will wrap things up for this episode thank you Michael thank you to Rudy Barlow who's gone off to watch Liverpool's game against Atletico Madrid on the television he's covering that for La Liga lowdown I believe Thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you're staying well. Hopefully you're staying safe. Until next time, goodbye.